0: Romans chapter 4, and let's read in verse number 21, just for the context. Verse number 21 is speaking about Abraham, a man who lived in about the second millennium B.C., and he's recorded in the book of Genesis. It says here in verse number 21, And being fully persuaded that what he had promised, that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. It was reckoned to him. It was credited to his account for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone, that it was reckoned to him, but it was for us also, to whom it shall be reckoned, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses, and was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God In the book of Romans we find ourselves in a section that brings itself from chapters 1 through chapter 5 of a of a very particular argument of Not an argument in terms of conflict, but an argument in terms of persuasion, in terms of proof that even though the entire world is condemned before God, God has provided a means by which he can forgive sins without just putting sins behind him and ignoring them. But he actually deals with sins in their fullness. So that God is just in punishing what is wicked, but he is also merciful in forgiving sinners. So Romans chapters 1 through 5 follows a very particular train of thought. In the first three chapters, Paul is going to bring before us three primary people groups that represent the entire world. In chapter 1, Paul talks about, we could call them, the person who is secular the secularist, someone who absolutely denies God in their knowledge and does not know him or refuses to know him and rather turns to naturalism, to the worship of nature. So that's chapter 1, and Paul declares them without excuse. They have no defense in the court of God. But then we come to chapter 2, and in chapter 2, we meet these people who are nominally religious. They are moralists but in reality they're hypocrites because they look at the world that worships nature and that falls into absolute unrestrained wickedness and it looks at that world and these people say, I'm not like that. But then the reality is they're like that in their hearts. And so Paul says, you're without excuse whoever passes judgment on these people because you have the same problem, but it's just in your heart. So then in chapter two, the last part of it, Continuing into chapter 3, we have seen that the secularist, the naturalist is condemned. We have seen that the moralist is condemned. But then Paul brings up this very shocking class of people, the Jews. The Jews. And in chapter 2, he says that the Jews, even though they were teachers of God's law, were actually the most depraved of them all. Because even though they had God's word, they rejected what they knew, and therefore they had unparalleled hardness of heart and wickedness before God. So even though they were a teacher of non-Jews, they actually became the cause for those who were not Jews to blaspheme God. So you have the wicked, you have the nominally moral, And then you have the Jew, and Paul says they are all condemned. So then in chapter 3, Paul introduces this idea that even though man is universally condemned and guilty before God, God has set forth a propitiation in Jesus Christ. Let me just explain what that word means. Propitiation is a word that we could also translate appeasement, satisfaction of God's wrath. And so it's basically saying that because man is wicked, God's wrath, God's justice for sin needs to be satisfied. And in Jesus Christ, because of the cross, God is satisfied. And therefore he is able to offer forgiveness of sins to the entire world because of the cross. And so he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. Why? Because he has publicly displayed, that's the cross we've been hearing about, a public display Of Jesus Christ as the one who can take away sins. So that's what Paul has been coming from and so he leads into chapters 4 and 5 where we read and so what I purpose to do this evening is very simple. I am a firm believer in the fact that the word of God itself contains the power to give you the understanding of God and that it's not about preaching so much as it is giving you an understanding of the word that allows you to see things clearly. So what I want to do, just so you are assured that these are not my words, is I want to give you a survey of chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Romans to prove that God justifies a man. God declares a person righteous only on the basis of faith. And then in chapter 5, we're going to look at this. That because God justifies by faith, there is the most supreme blessing imagined by man. In fact, beyond what man can imagine, there is the supremest blessing because God declares man righteous only when that man comes to God by faith. So let's, let's break down this passage and just see what it means, see how the text flows, so that we can understand the word of God together. In chapter 4, the first 16 verses, we are introduced to this man called Abraham. So Abraham was the father of the Jewish people, ethnically speaking, and Abraham was known as being their patriarch, their father. This man, beyond any other Jew that ever existed, beyond any other Hebrew that ever existed, this is a man to model because God spoke to him first. And out of this man, God brought the Jewish nation. And he established a people through this man named Abraham. So when Paul talks about this man named Abraham, he asks this question in verse number 1 of chapter 4. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, according to the flesh, has found? Okay. So what he's basically going to do is prove three things. Three things that cannot justify a person. Remember, we've seen in chapters 1 to 3 that man is condemned. So we need forgiveness of those sins. But God's purpose is much greater than that. God not only wants to forgive sins, but rather he wants to declare a person righteous. So that not only is judgment withheld from them, but rather God can bring the person to himself because they have a righteousness that corresponds to his own. That's the majesty of what salvation is. So chapter 4 presents three things that cannot justify a person. And Paul begins by asking that question in chapter 4 and verse number 1. What shall we say then that Abraham our father, according to the flesh, has found? So the first thing that cannot justify a person would be self. Self cannot justify a person, In other words, our own efforts, our own works cannot justify. So he says in verse number 2, If Abraham were justified by works, declared righteous in the court of God by works, he has something to boast in, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? It says Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So it begins by saying, That if Abraham earned God's favor, if Abraham earned his righteousness because of his works, then Abraham, as a mere mortal man, would have something to boast in. But then Paul says, but not before God. Because a man cannot have any reason to boast before God. And let me just take an aside very briefly here. When it comes to your personal relationship with God, there is no possible reality in which you will know God and have the ability to boast in yourself. So if you find any reason to give yourself credit in your relationship with God, I guarantee you this, you do not have a relationship with God. Our works cannot declare us justified before God. There's a logic behind this because in verses 4 to 8, Paul is basically going to say this, where someone works to earn someone else's favor, it is like a paycheck, it is like a wage, it is something that you've earned. And so he says, you know, to him that works, to him that earns God's favor by his good deeds, that reward is not given to him freely, but it's given to him out of obligation. You see, if I work for my employer for a week, and I work 40 hours in that week, there is a sense in which my employer owes me that money. The problem is, when it comes to God, God cannot be any man's debtor. God cannot owe a man a single thing. Why? Because God himself is the one who gave you life. God himself is the creator And the one who holds infinite power in his hand, and who breathed life into your very lungs. Do you think that God could owe you something? No. No. God owes us nothing. God owes us nothing. Rather, it is we who are indebted to him. So salvation cannot be by works, because that would make God owe us something doesn't work that way. But what does Paul say? He says, but to him that does not work. So he's introducing this class of people. There's a class of people who are not trying to earn God's favor, but rather they just take God at his word. And because they take God at his word and trust him because of what he has said, God does not look at their works then as being their righteousness, but rather he looks at their faith as being righteousness. And so he can credit righteousness to their account. He can declare them to be righteous because they have believed God and declared that everything they need is in God himself, not in their selves. You see how that works? God only offers righteousness based on grace, based on what is free, Because when it is free, that means God in all of his kindness comes. And he declares himself to be the one who is all-sufficient. And though he owed us nothing, he gives us everything. That's what the gospel is about. So, point number one, just keep it very simple in your mind. Self cannot justify. When we come to verses 9 to 12, we have this idea of circumcision. So he brings up this question, this blessedness, this state of blessing, of being righteous before God, does it come on those who are Jews only, or is it for non-Jews as well? So circumcision was just a sign that Jews were Jews. That was just their national sign. It was a seal. It was a symbol. But then Paul says, it can't be. It can't be for the Jews only. Why? Well, let's think about this. Abraham was the first person to be circumcised as a mark of his ethnicity. But when was Abraham declared righteous? It was in Genesis chapter 15, before God gave him that symbol of circumcision. So even for Abraham, he was justified as a normal Gentile. Not a Jew. He was justified as one who did not have any distinguishing marks in his own humanity. So if Abraham is the pattern of how God justifies, it can't be because of a symbolic distinction. It cannot be because of an ethnic distinction. So works cannot save, but I also have to tell you this evening from chapter 4 that symbols cannot save. We live in a world full of religious symbols, don't we? Even the cross. Even the cross is abused as a religious symbol. And some would even think that just because they wear it around their neck, they understand what it means. But the reality is God is not looking for you to be set apart by a symbol or a church group or a denomination. God is looking for you to be marked by a person. Who died on the cross, yes, but the person who is the Savior, Jesus Christ. Symbols cannot save. What happens when we come to verse number 13? We have seen that self and works cannot declare a person righteous. We have seen that symbols cannot justify a person In verses 13 to 16, we ask this question, Okay, is it possible that maybe the law that was given to the Jews could justify them? Paul says in verse number 13, For the promise that he should be, that is Abraham, the heir of the world, was not to Abraham or his seed or his descendants on the basis of the law. It was not through the law, because God gave this promise before the law ever came. The law came over 400 years after Abraham existed. So it cannot be based on the law either. When Paul talks about the law in the book of Romans, he usually speaks of a system. A system. Something that the Jews followed as being a means of earning God's favor. Because we have the law, because we have religion... As such, because we have our system, therefore we have a position of favor before God. But Paul says, not so. Not so. Systems cannot justify. And if you are resting in some external shell to grant you favor before God, you are not justified. You are not saved. You do not know God. If you're resting in self, if you're resting in symbols, if you're resting in systems, they are all insufficient. And in fact, they're not only insufficient, rather they are negative because they detract you from God's true solution, which we are about to see. So basically, in verses 13 to 16, let me just sum this up. The law cannot justify because the law condemns. In verse number 15, it says, The law produces wrath. The law produces wrath. In other words, even if the law could justify a person, no one could be justified by it. Because the law exposes the deepest, darkest secrets of my heart. And so even if you want to try to be justified by the law, the law produces God's wrath because you are condemned by it. And if you don't believe that you are condemned by the law, let me ask you if you have kept the first commandment and the chief commandment. Jesus said these words to a rich young ruler 2,000 years ago. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Is God in all your thoughts? Is God in all your desires? If we are honest with ourselves, the full force of God's law condemns us. I want to ask you this evening does it concern you that you were condemned before God? Does it concern you that nothing really matters in this life compared to eternity and yet the fact that you are facing an eternity of judgment by the living God, and yet you pursue the most empty things in this life for fleeting satisfaction. You get your soul right with God. That is the only thing that matters, ultimately. The only thing that matters is your response to God in this age, in this time you have on earth. Because after you die, you will be ushered into everlasting destiny in heaven or in hell, eternally. Don't you dare tamper with the living God. Don't you dare. So we've seen what cannot justify, and we have basically found ourselves to be entirely condemned before God. So the question remains then, how does God justify a person? How can I go from being someone who is condemned to someone whom God has declared righteous? The answer begins in verse number 16. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. So get this, grace and faith go together. Grace comes from God, faith comes from myself. God wants to offer righteousness for free. The only way you can receive something for free is if you have not earned it. And the only way you can come to God without works is by faith. Do you see the connection there? Because I am just approaching God and laying myself down before God, and I declare Him to be all sufficient, and I declare Him alone to have the solution for my need, that is faith. And because I have declared Him to be the only one who can save me from my sins, therefore God can offer salvation for free, and He can declare you righteous because you have believed a promise that if you come to God by faith, he will declare you righteous forever. What kind of faith did Abraham have? What kind of faith justified Abraham? Well, he's going to bring us an illustration of how this worked. In fact, this was the very thing that Abraham believed God concerning. It says in verse 18, Who against hope... Believed in hope. What is it saying? God had promised Abraham, and Abraham was almost 100 years old, mind you, that Abraham would have a son. Abraham's womb was dead. He could not produce children. Sarah's womb was dead. She could not produce children. They both understood that. It was impossible. It was physically impossible that God could bring life out of that death. At least it would seem so. But Abraham knew that because this is God who is promising this to me, I don't care if it's impossible or not. Because the living God has given me a promise that I will have a son. And so even if it contradicts all human logic, I believe God and he will give me a son. So it says, against hope, against what one would expect, he believed and he expected God to fulfill his word. And so it says, not being weak in faith, even though he considered his body to be dead, he did not stumble at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith and he gave glory to God. Being fully persuaded, and this is where we began our reading tonight, being fully persuaded that what God had promised he able, He was able to perform. And in verse 22 it says, Therefore, because Abraham believed in the impossible, God declared him righteous. How is that relevant for me? I don't think God is going to promise me a son at 100 years old, if I make it to 100 at all. So it says in verse number 23, Now this was not written for Abraham alone, But it was written for us. How does this relate to us? If we believe on Him, remember we've been thinking about God bringing life out of death, a living Son through dead wombs. If we believe on Him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered because of our offenses and was raised again because of our justification. What has God done? Well, first of all, God has sent his son to die. I've been impressed this past week, in some measure, by the sufferings of Christ. He was delivered over for our offenses. That word delivered over just means he was totally yielded. All that man could do to him, he yielded himself to that. Galatians 2 says he gave himself. And as I look around a world of suffering, as I look around a world of many, many tears, there is some small measure in which we can appreciate the physical sufferings of Christ. He could say, reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. He could say, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like unto my sorrow which the Lord has afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Isaiah 53 says he was oppressed and he was afflicted. There is some small measure in which we can come into that. But we will never understand What it meant on that cross for the Lord Jesus to enter into the very wrath of God itself for our sins. We will never understand. He was delivered for our offenses, and because He has become the grand substitute because he has taken my place, because he became sin so that God could judge him. Therefore, I can go free. So he died so that my sins could be put away. But he is the living God himself. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and so he could not be bound by the chains of death. So it says, he was raised again for our justification. I understand this in a very simple way. Abraham believed that God could bring life out of death. Life out of death is an impossibility. So the quality of Abraham's faith was that he believed in the impossibility of having life come out of death. So what is Paul saying? He's not saying that Christ bore our sins in his resurrection, but what he is saying is this. Christ put away sin because he died. But because Christ rose from the dead, and because he ascended to the right hand of God and now is a living Savior, therefore I have an object of an impossible reality that I must believe. There is something that God has done in this person. He raised him from the dead. That impossible act of God, I am now called to believe that. And so he was raised again for our justification because in his resurrection he provides me an object of faith so that I can be justified. He was raised from the dead, something impossible, so that I might believe in God with the same quality of faith that Abraham had, so that... I might be justified. He was raised again for our justification. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? God has set forth his son as the supreme savior. He has utterly condemned man even in all of his religion. Where does that leave us? Well, it leaves you with a responsibility to respond to the grace of God in simple faith. God has provided all that you need to be forgiven of your sins, not only having your sins put away, but having a positive Righteous standing before God, justification. And so I would just like to close with the words of the first 11 verses of chapter 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, this is what God is offering you. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access, not by works, but by faith, into this grace wherein we stand. And we rejoice. In hope of the glory of God. And then he says, what happens when you have peace with God? Well, your experience changes. Life is still going to be hard after you have peace with God. But the tribulations don't end with difficulty. It goes beyond that. And it says in verse number 3 that these trials produce patience. And in verse number 4, these patience produce proven character. And the culmination of it all is hope. Hope. How do we have this hope? Because it says the love of God is being poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And there is a growing appreciation of what verses 6 and 8 tell us. But when we were yet without strength, at that time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse number 8, but God demonstrates, God proves his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you have peace with God in your position, you are growing in your experience, and you have a growing appreciation for the love of Christ who reached down when we were helpless, who died for our sins when we were sinners, and we only love him more and more and more because God has set him on display as the proof of his love. And when we grow in love to Christ, it says much more in verse number 9, then being justified by his blood. It doesn't end there. We're going to be saved from future wrath through him. Verse number 10, if we were enemies and we were reconciled by his death, how much more will God bring us to himself, give us full salvation by his life? And then he culminates it all in verse number 11. And not only so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom we have now received this reconciliation. If you want to know what salvation looks like, it looks like this. It looks like a person who finds nothing to boast in in himself. And he looks to God who has provided free and full salvation in the person of Jesus Christ And it says, I'm going to make my boast in God because I have found him and I have come to know him because he has reconciled me to himself. He has brought me to his very heart. That is what justification is. That is what salvation is. And so my solemn duty tonight for you is to plead with you on God's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. How does that happen? There's one thing that you must do. You must realize that you have nothing to offer Him in yourself, but you can just trust Him for your eternal salvation. And based on that simple act of faith, believing that God sent his son to die and to rise from the dead for you. If you can just simply trust God on that basis, he will save you. It's a promise. God never lies. God always keeps his promises.